let's turn together to 1 Samuel 22. I want to read you before then two passages. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you know what a foil is? No, not that kind. This has nothing to do with casseroles. A foil is a character in a story. And there's one in most good stories. And they always share the same purpose Foils teach us about the hero by way of contrast. You see, the foil is a lot like the hero in superficial ways and nothing like the hero in the most important ways. And so the way the foil behaves and the way he relates to others and the way he responds to conflict teaches us what the hero of the story isn't like. Like Gollum to Frodo. Very similar in nature. Very similar in size. Both keepers of the ring. Yet we learn much about Frodo after dark reflections upon the cunning and despair of Gollum. Or Draco Malfoy to Harry Potter. Both young, clever, powerful. Yet we learn much about the loyalty and courage of Potter by discovering the ever-darkening ambition of Malfoy. Foils are everywhere. Joker to Batman, Agent Smith to Neo, Starbuck to Captain Ahab, Mr. Collins to Mr. Darcy. In every case, the foil exists to illuminate the character of our hero by contrast. We we learn who they are by a vivid depiction of who they are not. And the Scriptures do this too. Today we're going to learn a lot about who David is by reflecting on the grim and horrifying display of who he is not. Saul, you see, is a foil. Saul is a king like the nations. David is a man after God's heart. Saul rejects the prophet of God. David runs to the prophet of God. Saul masquerades as a sane man. David masquerades as a madman. They are inverse reflections of one another, and that's on purpose. Because sometimes the best way to discover the character of a very good man is to contrast that character with the thoughts, words, and actions of a very bad man. And so, 
As difficult as this passage may seem, there is much to learn about the coming king of Israel by contrast. Before we get into the text, though, I want to address the painful work of reading the most difficult passage, passages in the scriptures. We gloss over them often, but sometimes the scriptures reflect unspeakable atrocities. And more than once, I've stepped away from my Bible in a state of despair. Because surely, surely violence and hate on this scale isn't necessary. But it is necessary. And let me tell you why. There are two kingdoms competing for our attention right now. When you open Netflix, when you swipe through your Facebook feed, when you answer every text message, Every moment is a battle for your hope, for your worship. Because our attention, our affections, our allegiance is split between two worlds, two nations, two kingdoms, two thrones. We talk a lot about one of these kingdoms, the kingdom of the son of David. And oh, what a kingdom. The son of David is a shelter to the weak, hope for the bitter, courage to the brokenhearted. The son of David lays down his life for the safety of his family. He is a mighty king fighting for his people by the strength of God. And his kingdom will be marked by outrageous displays of his affection for his brothers and sisters. A people who will celebrate his victory for ages without end. And it's simple enough in the moment to declare with enthusiasm, I will set my hope in that coming kingdom. I will prepare for Christ's return. I belong to Him. He is my beloved and I will sacrifice all to see His people prepared. On Sunday, when we've just explored the worth and work of Christ, our hearts might rally and we might step out of these doors confidently. It's outside of these walls, though the battle rages on. The dark kingdom is seductive. It promises the thrill of unrestrained passions. It promises to satisfy our most secret lusts. It promises eight-digit bake accounts, fine wines, tables overflowing. It promises that corner office and respect and fame and worship. And I want these things, and so do you. So when we walk away from this place and when we begin to hear the whispered promises of the dark kingdom, our affection for the son of David sometimes wanes. We need to be reminded. And perhaps the most effective tool to combat the seduction of the dark kingdom is to see it for what it really is. To expose the dark kingdom. To explore its alleyways and its corners. Behind the promises of the dark kingdom is chaos and hatred and violence without end. Behind the promises of the dark kingdom is genocide and rape and starvation and all that is awful, everything horrifying that this world has become. The dark kingdom is less and less attractive to the degree to which you see it clearly. 
And so the scriptures don't hesitate to show you how awful the dark kingdom truly is. The darkest moments in the scriptures are there to teach you the nature of the dark kingdom. The kingdom that is always chasing after your affection, your attention, and your allegiance. Because the scriptures were written to prepare the people of God for the coming kingdom of Christ. A kingdom diametrically opposed to the dark kingdom of this world. So we will gaze steadily upon the horrors of the dark kingdom that we might become immune to its seduction. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Let's read together. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. All right, stop for a moment and reflect. David, you may remember, has fled the kingdom of Israel because Saul wants to kill him. Saul wants to kill him. And that very idea is absurd because David has worked feverishly to establish the kingdom of Israel. His sling delivered the people of Israel from Philistine oppression. He has personally overseen the king's safety as the captain over Saul's bodyguard. He is the finest soldier and most respected leader among Saul's ranks. But Saul rages against David and demands his life because he remembers Samuel's prophecies that a better man will take his throne. Saul wants to crush David because he cares more for his own position than he does for his people. And that much is evident in these words. Reread them with me. Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? In other words, I can offer you fields and vineyards. I can offer you positions of power and respect if only you'll forsake the son of Jesse and serve my kingdom. But you'll lose everything if David reigns. You'll lose all that you love if the son of Jesse becomes king. And don't miss the sense of those final words. All of you have conspired against me. So look, Saul's insanity has haunted the kingdom of Israel for years now. But here we begin to see his madness unrestrained. Right now, in this moment, Saul is surrounded by his highest ranking men. Those who have been faithfully serving him since his ascension. These are his closest companions. And yet he rages against them as if they're at the heart of a national conspiracy. Listen to his words. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. My 
son has stirred up my servant against me. Now that is an accusation from the depths of paranoia. And we know that because we know who Jonathan is. This is the same Jonathan who rushed upon Israel's enemies with only his armor bearer, who delivered the people while Saul hid in a cave. This is the same Jonathan who was willing to die because Saul made a foolish vow. This is the same Jonathan who had faithfully served beside his father despite fits of rage and insanity, despite having to dodge spears hurled at him over the dinner dishes. Jonathan does not conspire against the king because Jonathan is faithful. It's just not who he is. And yet Saul in his madness shouts, Conspiracy! The dark king rages against his own people. It is his way. He is consumed by fits of paranoia and insanity and he demands blood because he knows that his kingdom is coming to an end. Keep reading. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, answered, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he, required, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Do you remember Doeg? When David stopped for supplies at Nob, he was there in the dark corner of the room, looming. Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen, was detained before the Lord, is what the text says. A few questions that need answering. First, why would an Edomite be the chief of Saul's herdsmen? I mean, why not an Israelite? Well, we know from a note in chapter 14 that Saul had gone to war against the Edomites. So there's a chance that Doeg was a prisoner of war who had been retained in Saul's profession because he was particularly handy. There's also a chance that Doeg was a mercenary, a foreign hand hired by Saul to tend to particular responsibilities. In either case, it seems that Doeg was once an enemy of God's people. Second, what does it mean that Doeg was detained before the Lord? Well, there are really two possibilities. Most commentaries suggest that these words suggest some sort of punishment. Doeg was detained, not willingly, but as a consequence for behavior, perhaps against the king or perhaps against the priests. The other option is that Doeg was detained willingly, perhaps because of a vow or during a feast or religious ceremony. Most of Israel's feast days precluded travel, so perhaps Doeg is restricted from traveling because of these constraints. Now, there are a number of reasons I don't embrace this view, most notably because we'll soon see that Doeg is among the most godless and ruthless men in the book of Samuel. And so it doesn't quite fit with this character portrait that he'd be eager to participate in acts of worship. But the other reason I don't buy it is because David himself, among the most faithful worshipers of Yahweh, who is described as a god after man, uh, uh, as a, who is described by God after a man after my own heart, David himself is traveling while Doeg is not. And that, for me, is enough to dismiss the notion that travel is restricted at this point because of a feast or a ceremony. So perhaps the best option is to understand that Doeg was detained before the Lord in Nob because of some misconduct. 
And that, set next to his nationality, set next to his past as an enemy of God's people, set next to his employment as a mercenary servant of a corrupt king, means that we should read Doeg's presence as sinister. This truly is a shady corner of a dark alley type of personality. And it only gets worse as we learn more about him. So when the dark king rages against his people, in what is clearly an unhinged temper tantrum, Doeg steps forward. We might imagine the awkward silence as Saul's court officials frantically imagine how to respond to such ridiculous accusations. Saul truly has no ally here in his own imagination and in reality, until Doeg steps forward and tells the king that the priests of Nob have given support to David on his way out of town. Keep reading. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub, And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as as it is this day? Stop just for a moment and reflect on these words. Why have you conspired against me to inquire of God for the son of Jesse? Not much is made of the bread or the sword. Although Doeg mentions that this indeed is the sword of legend, that which was carried by Goliath himself. No, when Saul interrogates the priest, his orders of events is an inverse of Doeg's. He mentions the bread and the sword, but the emphasis of the accusation lies on the act of intercession. How can I tell? Keep reading. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among your servants is so faithful as David? who is the king's son-in-law and captain over his bodyguard and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And notice, he only responds to one accusation. Ahimelech defends himself only on one front. And that is, I think, because Saul's real concern is not the sword that David carries, nor the bread that David eats. Saul's sincerest concern is the God who David worships. And here we stumble across a sharp line of distinction between Saul and David. Saul, too, has inquired after the God of Israel through his priest. But when Saul inquires, there is only silence. The only words of God that Saul receives now are prophecies of ruin. Saul knows that David is the better man, that David is the man after God's heart, that David is the coming king of Israel. So the worst thing that could possibly happen is for David to walk in the good counsel of the mighty God of Israel. Now, if you'll notice, Ahimelech's response clears him of all guilt in the eyes of any unbiased spectator. His answer is fourfold. No one is as faithful as David is in the house of Saul. He's your son-in-law. And that's true. 
He says, David is the captain of Saul's bodyguard. And that's true. He says, no one is as honored as David is among Saul's men. And that's true. And he says, inquiring on behalf of David was something that the priests did frequently as David went out to war on Saul's behalf. And that's true too. So Ahimelech had no grounds to suspect David's intentions on this occasion. And so Saul shouldn't, shouldn't suspect him of conspiracy. Ahimelech's answer is clear, concise, effective, and convincing. Yet Saul the madman who rages against the God of Israel and his anointed king is out for blood. Keep reading. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The guard. Think for a moment about that guard. He wouldn't put out his hand to strike the priests of the Lord. And neither would the servants around Saul. They refused also. See, most of these men have followed David into battle. They've labored alongside him. They respect him. And you may remember David's words that these soldiers strictly followed the law's holiest mandates when they went out to war. See, these men are sons of Israel. And these men are worshipers of Yahweh. And these men don't strike down the priests of God because that would be suicide. Blasphemy of the highest order. So if the mad king would like to rage against God's men, he'll have to find another way. And he does. Keep reading. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant. Ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. There are many dark moments in the story of Samuel, but this one is especially painful because these are the priests of God and they haven't earned Saul's wrath. In fact, these priests aided God's anointed while he was on a mission to establish the coming kingdom. They did what they ought have done. They are without fault, and yet they fall, and their families are murdered. Total destruction upon a village of priests, functionally stifling the worship of God. Meditate on this, church, because this is what the dark kingdom is like. This is the rage of the dark king. There's so much going on here, so I want to take a few moments and dwell on this most dreadful moment. First, this passage is more than a little ironic because the great fall of Saul's kingdom began when he refused to totally destroy the enemies of God. Do you remember? God had ordered the total destruction of a city of God's enemies and Saul chose instead to spare some and to keep the spoils and to feast on the riches. Here, though, Saul's resolve is unmovable. Why? Why is he willing to do now what he was unwilling to do then? I'll tell you why. Because Saul is a king like the nations. And if there is a single characteristic 
common to the nations. It's that they rage against God and his anointed. Saul is the dark king and this is the way of the dark kingdom. Second, I want to make a connection here that I hope might strengthen your confidence in God. Because if you didn't know any better and you saw this wicked king order the wholesale destruction of God's servants, you might believe that God had lost control. But that isn't what's happening. Do you remember the corrupt priest Eli and his wicked sons? These evil priests stole God's sacrifices and threatened God's sons and took advantage of God's daughters. They corrupted the worship of God in the most heinous manner. And Eli, their father, watched passively as the name of God was defamed throughout Israel. The priesthood had become a sham. And so God cursed this family of priests with the following words. I promised that your house and that the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes and to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Hear my words, Eli. All the descendants of your house shall die by the sword, I promise. And the sun rose and set, and seasons changed, and years and decades and generations passed until the promise of God was fulfilled in the slaughter of these priests. The sovereignty of God is sometimes difficult to wrap my mind around because sometimes God promises that evil things will happen to wicked people. And then, later, they do. Horrifying actions unfold upon wicked men and women because their wickedness has provoked the wrath of God. And often the sentence against wicked men is carried out by wicked men. Behind every crushing blow is the wicked work of evil men and behind every crushing blow is the sovereign wrath of God. In Moments like these, God allows the wickedness of wicked men to terminate upon other wicked men. And at every point, he's sovereign. And at no point is he responsible. Sometimes the wrath of God is most sharply expressed in his permission. And that's what's happened here. The house of Eli had sought the darkness for generations For centuries, this family was entrusted with the holy things of God. For centuries, they were asked to lead God's people into holy worship. For centuries, they were entrusted to teach God's people and to shepherd God's people and to usher God's people into righteousness. And every generation of their effort was marked by bribery and by threats and by sexual immorality and by godlessness. So as Eli, many years ago, allowed the worship of God to be swallowed up in darkness, God in His wrath said, okay. 
all that unfolds at the hands of Doeg, this wicked man who would dare stretch his hand out against the priests of God, all that unfolds at his hand is the will of God to stop the abuse of his people. This scene, as harsh as it may seem, is a display of God's sweet mercy to cut off the wicked shepherds who would lead astray and abuse and consume the flock of God and to warn those who would follow in their way. Sometimes the wrath of God is most keenly on display when He allows the servants of the dark kingdom free reign over their own. You see, the way of the dark kingdom is murder and genocide and merciless bloodshed. And so God has warned His people since broken Adam strayed from the garden to resist the seduction of the darkness, to flee the wickedness of the dark kingdom. Eli and his sons embraced the darkness and themselves became citizens of the dark kingdom. And so God promised that they would have what they sought. The darkness would overcome them, but only by his permission. So don't be afraid. God has not lost control over his house. This work of bloodshed unfolded by his permission to rescue his people from a corrupt priesthood that is crippled their worship for generations. This work of wickedness unfolded only by his permission to serve as a warning to all those shepherds who are tempted to abuse the people of God. This slaughter is a demonstration of the true nature of the darkness and was permitted by God to keep his people from chasing the dark kingdom. It was permitted by God to turn their eyes to a better king and to a better kingdom. Keep reading. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. A sole survivor of this horrifying slaughter flees to the stronghold of David. Abiathar, the last priest, escapes the wrath of the dark king and flees to the shelter of the true king. As soon as he arrives, he explains to David all that is unfolded in Gibeah and Nob. And listen carefully to David's response. I knew on that day when Doeg the Adamite was there that he would surely tell, tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Three things. First, David recognizes his own role in the slaughter of the priests. He says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Now, readers of this passage are divided as to what David means here. He is either compassionately commenting that the priests would yet be alive if he hadn't sought shelter and supplies in Nob that day. In other words, David isn't admitting guilt in the slaughter of the priests and their families. But what we're seeing here is David's regret that his actions somehow provoked the wrath of Saul against the families of Nob. So that's one option. 
But others place greater emphasis on these words. I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. These readers suggest that David felt some compulsion to end Doeg's life, knowing that he would later report to Saul what had happened. But David chose rather to show him pity. But whether you believe that David was broadly regretting his role in the slaughter of the priests or particularly regretting his display of mercy toward Doeg, the character portrait remains the same. This is the sort of king who weeps with those who weep. This is the sort of king who regrets the lost lives of the innocent and who grieves, that, who grieves if that loss in any way relates to his actions. This is the sort of king who displays mercy, who hates violence, who weeps over murder, who laments lives treacherously lost. So that's number one. Number two is, you'll notice that David isn't merely a shoulder to cry on. As soon as he mourns together with the remnant priest, he promises safety. Stay with me, he says. You'll be safe here. Do not be afraid. What a display of compassion. The true king weeps alongside the broken and he promises safety. He wipes away every tear from every eye. Do not be afraid, he says. You can stay with us. You'll be safe here. I promise. Finally, though it's not included in the text of Samuel, we know from the Psalms that David on this day wrote a song. Psalm 52. When he learned that Doeg had reported to Saul, and when he heard that Saul had ordered the destruction of the priests of God, David wrote the following words. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. You've got to put this in context here. Look, this is a guy who is stuck in the wilderness of a foreign land surrounded by only a few hundred of the least of these. He's in Philistia. He's in a cave in a foreign wilderness surrounded by debtors. And when a remnant priest arrives and reports that Saul has slaughtered the servants of God, wouldn't you expect that David would be overwhelmed by despair? Shouldn't he give up right here in this moment, surrounded by enemy forces, outcast from his home? The priests of God are no more. The anointed of God is on the run. The dark king reigns in power, surrounded by the slaughter of the ruthless. 
truly, this is his darkest hour. Yet the son of Jesse turns in faith to God and watch as he mocks the momentary success of the wicked. God will break you down forever. He will snatch you and tear you out of your tent. The true king rallies in faith and take refuge, he takes refuge in the might of God. Vengeance is coming, David proclaims. And when you are a smoldering ruin, Doeg, the righteous will laugh and shout, See the man who would not make God his refuge. And though surrounded by the least of these in the cave in the pagan wilderness, David knows his place is secure. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. What a display of faith. And what a display of compassion. And what a display of hope. And that display is moving in itself. But is especially powerful in contrast to the behavior and words of Saul. Saul rages against his own, demanding their loyalty. David comforts his own and promises them safety. Saul rages against the innocent and demands bloodshed of the faultless. David laments the loss of innocent blood and regrets that his presence occasioned slaughter. Saul ignores the pleas of the priests. He corrupts justice and he slaughters families. David embraces the priest and he mourns alongside of him and he promises shelter. Saul plots destruction. He is a worker of deceit. Saul boasts of evil. But David trusts in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. So this is a tough passage. It's difficult, I think, to reflect on the slaughter. It's difficult to imagine Saul's rage stifling the lives of women and children. It's difficult to imagine a sole survivor fleeing the smoldering ruins of his family's home. Can you imagine? I can't imagine. I can hardly wrap my mind around Saul. I can hardly comprehend how one man's obsession with an illegitimate throne would stifle the lives of so many. But it's worth the effort to try to imagine because this is the foil at work. I read this week, uh, foils. They call it a foil because it used to be when you made rings and you had a diamond in the center of the ring, if you put a little layer of foil underneath the diamond, then the diamond would shine so much brighter. The foil being pretty much worthless but set next against the diamond when the line shines upon it. just See, we get a clear picture of who David is by considering in dramatic display who he is not. David is compassionate, and that compassion is on bright display against the ruthlessness of Saul. David is faithful, and that faith is a stunning display next to the blasphemy of this murderer king who rages against the work of God and his anointed. And David is kind, 
And that kindness is perfectly understood when you set it against Saul's display of hate. And that display, that juxtaposition, that contrast means something for me and you. This passage here is for us. Not only so that we can understand the story of these ancient kings. Not only so that we could better understand the history of ancient Israel. This display, this juxtaposition, this contrast means something for you and me because these kings are shadows. And their kingdoms are shadows. Remember, there are two kingdoms competing for our attention. The dark kingdom and the kingdom of the son of David. And as we gaze upon the shadows they cast, we are left with a decision. In whom will you place your trust? Choose your king. Every moment you're alive, you are actively choosing your king and your kingdom. Whom will you choose? The dark king rages, desperately clinging to a throne he knows he's already lost, with hate and murder in his heart. Not the son of David. He is kind and compassionate. He wipes away our tears and mourns alongside. He welcomes us into his shelter and promises safety. Whom will you choose? The dark king promises fields and vineyards while raging against the innocent. But the son of David welcomes the least of these, shelters the brokenhearted, promises restoration and fields, though not yet. Sing songs about the coming king. The son of David has earned your praise. When you gather together, reflect on his nature and rejoice because he is a king worthy of your devotion. But also remember the alleyways and the corners of the dark kingdom. Remember that the dark king would rage against his closest companions. Remember that he slaughters villages on a whim. Remember the hate and murder and insanity of the dark king and the violence and murder of the dark kingdom. Because not long from now, you'll start to hear again the whispers of seduction. And you'll be tempted to avert your eyes from the son of David. And it's easier to fight that temptation when you remember what the dark kingdom is truly like. Two kingdoms compete for your attention. May we set our hope in the coming son of David because his compassion is unparalleled and his shelter is bulletproof and his promises are true. Let's pray. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.